0: Hello and welcome to the Charity Impact podcast, the in-depth podcast for people working in the charity sector or more broadly to achieve social impact. We love to hear from our listeners, so please do engage with us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Also, if you subscribe to our emails via the website, you'll find out in advance who our upcoming guests will be and you can submit your questions for me to ask. I'm Alex Blake, your podcast host, and I'm joined today by Ben Lindsay, OBE, author, pastor, activist, and founder of Power the Fight, a charity he launched in 2019 to end youth violence. So we're going to be discussing the issue of youth violence and the related systemic issues, race as an issue in our sector, and also Ben's experience of setting up and running Power the Fight uh, in its first four years or so. So welcome to the podcast, Ben. How are you today?
1: yeah i'm great thank you for having me um yeah it's it's sunny at the moment so that is a good thing
0: yeah hey yeah it's a bit more mixed up here (laughs) up in the north um yeah it's a fairly nice morning
1: that's good
0: um all right so you've been working on this issue for what like 20 years or more now in in various roles um mainly in southeast london and Fun fact for our listeners, which I didn't realize until we spoke recently, was that we went to the same school just a few years apart from each other. Uh, So that was fun to learn. And we're going to start off talking about youth violence, getting into the context of that issue. And I was just curious, like, obviously, it was an issue back when we were at school in the 90s, and it still is today. So I'm just interested. Like, what do you think's changed over that time, or maybe what stayed the same? And and then just if you can set out what the sort of current situation is around the issue, as you see it.
1: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question actually. And the first thing I'll say is there's a there's a debate actually in our in our sector, which is how do you frame what do you say about about violence and young people? Mm. So lots of people will say youth violence, um, but that is a dangerous phrasing of it because I think what you can then think is that, you know, somehow violence is is separated <laughs> generationally when mm. actually violence is violence. So something which we we tend to say is violence affecting young people. Mm-hmm. So it just separates it out a little bit, which is is more of a technical thing. So you may well, yeah. hear, as we talk, just <laughs> refer it as violence affecting young people. I think, in terms of the last twenty years, um, as you know, as you said, we both went to the same school in South East London, and I think you probably agree that that there was violence around us. At, yeah, at, you know um, that particular area where we grew up. Um, we had Stephen Lawrence was 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 killed um, a mile away from our school. Um, we had uh, well, at least in my uh, year because we there's a bit of a gap between us um we had kind of triads uh yeah. we had the national front <laughs> yeah. um we had the Peckham boys um you know we we had a, a real mix of different groups of people who also got involved in, in violence so yeah. it was a real mixed bag so it's always there i think what is changed in 20 years is the frequency um, and the levels of anxiety and fear that young people have so I never went to school thinking is this the day I'm going to get robbed is this the day I'm going to get stabbed is this the day I'm going to get hurt there was always a risk of that but it wasn't something which was always on my mind I think when you talk to young people in 2023 there is this ongoing concern which creates trauma where they are there's an expectancy that something's going to happen even if you are not connected mm. uh, when you talk to the average young person the you'd say oh yeah I've, I've been approached for my phone or I've been you know robbed or you know there's been an attempt to at rob that's not something which was a daily occurrence for for me when I was at school and I think in the last 20 years, when you include birth, uh, how technology has changed, how social media has come into, into, into play, how um, imagery and videos of, of violence is now more accessible, I think that then causes young people to have a lot more um, issues around their well being and mental health, which then leads to fear, which then in, in turn, possibly leads to some young people feeling if i carry a knife if i carry a weapon i am more protected so you've got all these multiple kind of issues which can lead to that and i think the other thing worth mentioning which is really important is in the last 20 years the level of youth services um has has decreased 1.5 billion pounds have come off local authorities across the country since austerity in 2010 2011 which has meant there's been now a lack of youth workers lack of youth service lack of provision um you take also forty four thousand police officers off the streets um of england um that also has an impact as well so there's there's a few things there where you're like okay the resources are are no longer there the pressure on 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 the people who are meant to be keeping us safe increases, um, and as a result of that, we're now in a mess. Where in 2021 we had the highest rate of 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 knife crime fatalities um, in 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 the UK like ever, um, and you know 30 plus young people were, were were murdered in the London context, and that and that is just. It's crazy you know it's it's ridiculous so it's definitely changed um i think we just haven't moved we haven't advanced we haven't um learned the the changing culture of youth of youth culture as 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 it has changed and impacted people and young people and families and communities in a, in a really devastating way
0: the other thing i was curious about as well because i now live outside of london i'm up in Newcastle. Um, and I suppose often when when these sorts of things are being discussed on the news and stuff, like it is quite London-centric in terms of a lot of the incidents happening, I know that's where you guys work for, don't they? Um, I was curious, like, what, what's the difference outside of London um, or, you know, at, and outside of major cities, you know, is it like Birmingham and Manchester might have some very similar issues, like somewhere like Newcastle or some of the sort of smaller cities and towns, is it the same sort of issue for young people or is there a different context?
1: Well, I think it's always, I mean, context is a really important word here. So I think you're always gonna have different cultural contexts depending on the, on, the, on the location. But in, in reality, it isn't just a London issue. Um, it isn't just a, a black issue. Um, in a London context, by the nature of the demographic of and the ethnic makeup of London. Um, this is something which disproportionately impacts black and brown communities. But interestingly, when you look at it from a UK perspective, um, the highest rates of knife crime, um, the top three places, number one is West Midlands, um, and then number two is a place which is actually very close to where you are, Cleveland.
0: Right.
1: So, um, which I think you'd have to help me here, but kind first of <laughs> can't it's northeast, it's Middlesbrough, yeah, of- yeah, Castle. And that's fascinating for me to to be able to think, gosh, that's uh, not somewhere which is in London, it's it's somewhere which has a uh a demographic which is an ethnic makeup of 98% white people yeah Yeah, it's the second highest rate of knife crime in in the country yeah. and the number 3 will be london so um definitely what i would say is that when you go outside of london um like violence doesn't discriminate in terms of geography um i think it does discriminate in terms of class Um, I think there's something rare, which we often don't want to talk about. We don't want to have the nuanced conversation about, you know, how uh, violence affecting young people can impact working class um, communities. But it's definitely not just a London issue. There's a youth culture issue. When you talk about the drug trade, which sometimes often leads to increased violence, you would have heard about county lines, drug lines being set up outside of, of major cities. And I think what we do have, as I said before, is a youth um culture issue. Um and I think uh how technology spreads. So when we were growing up, we didn't have WhatsApp, you know. Um whereas now, for example, the way information moves, the way young people can migrate across the country and get communication across the country is in a way which is a lot quicker than what we would have had 20 years ago. Um, what a young person may well be into, listening to, influenced by, in a London context, for example, doesn't just stay to London now. That could be yeah. a young person in the Valleys of Wales could be in exactly, into the exactly the same things. So there's this transient culture now, which means that every young person will be experiencing the same things and i think that's something just to bear in mind so i think it's a it's a uk wide issue it, it's um it's not it's not the common denominators and not it's not about race the common denominators tend to be um poverty poor mental health school schools high school exclusions um uh increase in substance misuse, where the drug trade is, you know, these are the common denominators which can lead to violence, you know, as a result of that, you can't just say it's one particular geographic areas issue or one particular ethnicities issue. It's, it's, a, it's a, it's a, it's a UK wide concern.
0: Yeah. And, and thinking about how we can address the issue more, um, I know you've you've talked about some of the kind of related systemic issues there are. What are the sorts of things that need to happen in different parts of the system, and like how can we we tackle that kind of complexity?
1: Yeah. So the thing about the charity which I set up, which I know we'll talk about a bit more later, is that for us we we had to look at this on on two levels. What we would call the ground. Which is okay. What is the community going through? What are their experiences? What are their vo- where their voices being heard? And match that to what we call the air. Okay, the decision makers, the legislation, um, the local and central government, mayoral decisions. Where's the funding kind of going? So what we felt there was there was a conjurant missing. Uh, someone in the middle of that grand air to communicate those those experiences up. So I think it's one of these things where we're saying, okay, on a systemic um, systems, air engagement level, where are the resources going? You know, if 1.5 billion have come off in the last 10 years, we're kind of working in a deficit model, right? Um, so where are the resources going? And, and that's why we work very closely with local government, central government and the mayor of London, through the violence reduction units to try and help that. Then there's also a conversation about, okay, um when we when we're looking at the criminal justice system and we're looking at the young people who get caught up in the criminal justice system there's a link to school exclusions and poor mental health so again a lot of our work is based on going beyond the headlines you see the headlines of a young person has lost their life but we often don't get to the question of well how did they get to that point or how did the person who 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 use the weapon get to that point so for us it's very much about early intervention and that's why we we believe that in the school context it's really important to have what we would call culturally sensitive therapists and culturally sensitive psychologists and culturally sensitive youth practitioners who really understand the culture and the context that they're working in and can offer young people an opportunity to really express their their feelings and their emotional uh, health and their and their well being, and also help teachers understand the context and the culture they're in, and also provide spaces for parents and carers as well. So you're getting this kind of holistic approach. So there's a school conversation. There's a there's a resource and, and funding conversation. There's an enforcement conversation as well. Um, how are the police treating our our young people um are they being stigmatized is there um race, are they being racialized is it is there, is there is there things and biases which are not actually helping um young people flourish um and these are the things that also need to be addressed so there there's, there's these multiple issues, the well-being the anxiety of families and, and, and young people the the ongoing aftermath of when a murder does happen in the community and that has ripple effects which can go on for years and, and decades um how the criminal justice system deals with families who have lost young people and the perpetrators you know there's there's, there's all these multiple kind of levels which need to be addressed. Um, which at the moment it doesn't feel um, like there is a space where you can say actually let's look at it from an air engagement perspective let's look at it from a ground engagement but ultimately you want early intervention and you want resources and just to be clear I think when we do talk about systems I since sometimes you can think well does that mean that we're taken away from personal responsibility not at all I think the reality is there are some very, there's some dangerous people out there who do need to be locked away because they are causing mayhem and 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 death and, and pain to communities. Um, but I also feel there needs to be an opportunity for rehabilitation. And I think we need to also try and get to the very roots of what we're dealing with. There's this thing called ACEs, um, Adverse Childhood Experiences, which really, if you look at a lot of the people who are in the criminal justice system, they would have gone through so much stuff. They would have seen parents who may have been into substance misuse, poor mental health, maybe incarcerated, you know, um, criminals themselves and seen domestic violence. And then you wonder why those children are the the more problematic ones. Mm. We don't often want to have those conversations. So yeah, so that was a long answer but <laughs> there's multiple kind of uh, yeah. reasons why we're in this mess. Uh, yeah, I think that was the just the question Is like
0: it's, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. this is a complicated issue. It's not a case of um mm. you know just being about young people carrying knives and attacking each other it's you know all of as you say all the experiences they've had and then really often you know they've been let down you could say really by by the schools and you know unhelpful attitudes within the police and so on um so yeah i guess as you say it's that early intervention isn't it it's trying you know it's changing some of those aspects of the system you know there have been how many reports on the met police and their kind of issues that could be dealt with and then in schools obviously if they get kids are getting the support they need there then
1: yeah the system the system the systems like you know yeah we've just had the case report come out around around the police um you know the levels of school exclusions that we've seen which tends to impact black and brown communities um and white working class communities as well in a way which is disproportionate these things need to be addressed, um, and you know, people referral units as well. There are some good people referral units out there, but there are also a, there, are, there are also a lot of people referral units which just are breeding grounds for for more, um, you know, complex, complex behavior and in some cases criminality. So we have to address these things. Otherwise, what you are effectively doing is just putting a a plaster over a gunshot wound and it's just not it's not ever going to heal right you're not you're not addressing and this is why the public health approach which um became very famous in scotland where you know glasgow at one point was the had the highest murder rate in in europe and then they decided in '05 to start this uh public health approach which was really looking at this thing from from a health issue as opposed to an enforcement issue and bringing in multiple different institutions to to try and address this issue. And one of the interesting things was that they had this zero exclusions policy and with that zero exclusions policy, um, it meant that actually, the murder rate reduced by 80% because somebody connected the dots to say well, if you're excluding children and they're no longer in a system which is caring that can lead to criminality they pinpointed that now the problem with in this country in England I, I don't think you're never going to get a zero exclusions policy because when you start talking about this with your teachers they automatically assume you're saying you're taking the power away from me to exclude children which i think are causing disruption in in my school Mm. i don't think it's that i think it's more a case of can we create more therapeutic support in school so those kids who are more challenging get an in on-site therapeutic support as opposed to being sent somewhere else where the the provisions are not as good and i think is a there's a kind Mm. of fine line and a difference there
0: Oh, yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? To be fair to the teachers as well, when they've got a class of thirty kids and they you know, they've got to uh, try and support all of them. And there's one or two that, as you say, have those more difficult behaviours. then it's it's and finding how want, to
1: how to as support a them you want that as well, right? As a parent, someone, one oh, yeah. like, oh, kid and that kid is disrupting everything. Your automatic thinking would be, I want that kid out. But then what we don't think about is, well, what trajectory are we putting that child on?
0: Hi, please excuse this brief interruption. I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast and to ask a small favor. The whole point of the podcast is to help people working for social impact by sharing the experience and knowledge of our awesome guests. Please can you help by letting people know this free resource is worth a listen. A great way to do this is by taking a few seconds to give us a rating in your podcast player. You can just click the five stars and that would be amazing. Or if you could write a few words to say what you like about the show, that would be even better. The link, ratethispodcast.com slash charity, will take you to the right place and show you how to do it. That link again is ratethispodcast.com slash charity. If there isn't a rating option where you listen, you can always give us a shout out on social media. Thanks for listening. Race has come up in the context of, of youth violence and how people view that um how what's your experience been um in setting up the charity and, and being a charity ceo and interacting with as you say those kind of different parts of the system and also then needing to go and talk to funders and things like that what's what's your experience been in in that sense
1: yeah so it's it's um it's a great question so uh, it's quite helpful that I've been in this space for 20 plus years and that has been in multiple guises as Working in youth offending service and I was a learning mentor and I was managing part of uh, you know, community safety teams in, in Camden and you know, South London, North London, mental health charities. I was a pastor for 12 years as well. So in the community, in the space that I've been working in and living in and serving, um, I think my reputation working with uh Leaders, MPs, um uh, leaders in in councils, uh, mayors, and, and whatever has meant that actually, when by the time I I launched Power to Fight, I wasn't starting from zero, mm-hmm. starting from a place where I would I I felt I had a good understanding of the sector that I was about to come into. Um, so walking into that, I felt confident that I had something which was was a slight different and variation to what was out there already. Saying that though, um, it definitely wasn't as straightforward as I thought it was going to be. Uh, you know, <laughs> you start in 2019 and the first thing in my mind, I'm thinking, well, you launch a charity and that's when you start getting the money. Mm-hmm. Whereas what actually happened in reality was that I, I launched a charity. Once we got it past the charity commission and it was all signed off and I'm, now I'm applying for for... For um, support and uh, foundations and grants, they they start people started saying, "Well, you need one year's worth of accounts before you can your apply." And I'm like, "Well, how am I going to get one year's worth of accounts if I've got I've got nothing? I've just started." Oh, yeah. Yeah. Then you're like, "Oh, okay, this isn't straightforward," and you have to go into kind of like this hustling mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, how I I was able to to raise and fundraise and get some extra money. Was because of my my connections within in the church, and I was able to kind of say, "Listen, you know, you've heard me speak about violence affecting young people. You've 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 seen me have to do services for families who've lost um, children. You know how important this is." And so we were able to raise some money from the churches as a, as I suppose a bit of a startup. I think what I found though was um, definitely something which is, is something which i've seen throughout my career there was this there's, there's a there's a conversation about what is funded and how it's funded and how that money is distributed to organizations which are grassroots and are, are often black led so one of the things which i i realized was that actually when it comes to trying to get money from uh funders there's a real lack of understanding about Black-led organisations and the communities that they're serving. And I suppose the question is this this equity conversation that so many of the organisations which are engaging with issues which impact Black and brown communities are doing work which isn't funded very well. So. Um, I found myself in a situation where you found that the bigger charities and the bigger organizations were getting a lot of money, and then what they would do is almost subcontract out to organizations like myself. Mm. So I was like, well, that doesn't really make sense because you're not doing the work, but you have the reputation. So I had to fight a lot to be to get the trust and I and I felt that actually being one of the few, Black-led organisations, CEOs in this, in, in this space. I had to fight harder than maybe some of my, my peers. Um, and so I learned a lot in the first year. Uh, and there was ways I kind of got around that quickly. But um, yeah, I, I think one of the things I, I realised is that um, you have to make your organisation look bigger than it is (laughs) 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 which is is not deception at all but one of the things i said was right we're going to make the website and we're going to make the um the branding something which looks so professional and so slick that when you look at what power fight brings you're going to think we're bigger than we are and that's what we did. I, and I always say, I run Power to Fight very much like a record label. It's kind mm-hmm. of like, you know, we, we if, you know you put out a single to promote the album. Well, for me, I'm like, well, we're gonna put out reports and we're gonna have an, a, an evaluation and a research arm of Power to Fight and every single thing we're gonna evaluate and every single thing we're gonna put out as a report and that's gonna lead to more funding. So we were doing that within six months of us launching. And suddenly the sector starts seeing, oh no, these guys are evidence-based, what they're doing, we're going to give them money. And that's kind of what we we ended up doing.
0: Yeah, I think there's a few really smart things there. I mean, the producing the evidence is is obviously um, something that's just worth investing in because it gives you that credibility. But also, I think your point around investing in the sort of marketing and brand for funders and for others in the sector looking it just gives a sense of kind of professionalism that gives people confidence to then work with you to to fund you and so on. And I think for a lot of community sort of grassroots organizations, um, funders get an application from them and it's kind of, the stuff might be there in terms of saying that, you know, look, we know our community, we're in it, this is the work we do, it makes a difference and so on. But it's maybe not, in the professional language that they're used to maybe. And then they kind of, you know, if they click on the website and it looks like, you know, it's it's a crap website, it, you know, it looks rubbish. It looks like it could have been knocked up in half an hour. And it's, you know, and all of that is obviously, you know, partly just bit down to being under-resourced. But I think it's that perception that particularly now, like the first thing anyone does to check out any company or any charity is pop on the website, do they look professional? Do they look credible? Do they look legitimate? Or, you know, if it, if it doesn't look and feel right, then it just puts people off straight away. So I think that's a big thing. And I think that's, that's something that I think a lot of small charities struggle with. And and if they're not heard of then funders look at that and
1: go, mm, like, I don't know. I don't feel well, confident. I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think you have to make a, you have to make a decision on, on what you are going to invest money in your your startup you haven't got an abundance of money so there's something about trusting your brand and trusting your idea enough to think if i'm going to invest in branding it has to then generate the money i believe it can do for us to do anything else um yeah. and i was very clear on who i was going for i was like this and i what i want to be in a position where we're training Local authorities and youth offending teams and community safety teams and teachers um, and NHS and police and so therefore, the the, the website has to speak to that clientele, mm-hmm. which meant was uh, the first iteration of the website was very it's, it's changed now but it was it was black and white <laughs> it was kind of uh-huh. black and white <laughs> this is serious stuff <laughs> and and, and, um, and it worked. But then as time went on, it I pivoted a little bit and I was like, actually, okay, right. We've got kind of the, the corporate side of it, but there's this whole youth work side, which we're doing, the, 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 the therapeutic support we're doing, the work we're doing with schools, and it's just looking too corporate. So now mm. we need to bring some colour in and our social media needs to represent um, young people. And also from a donations perspective, What I also realised is that, and this is the bit which is, um, I had to really think this out, that I needed to create a a mixed funding model. So, okay, yes, we want contracts and yes, we want grants, um, but we also want corporates and we want donations from individuals. So the individuals... They really want to see the work you're doing with young people No. Yeah. okay the corporates want to make sure they're partnering with somebody to to hit their csr stuff right so this means that you you're kind of having depending on who you're talking to you've got to have something which speaks to why they'd want to engage with you and i suppose there's the Beautiful thing about being an organisation the size we are is that we can be a little bit more flexible and a bit more fluid and we can pivot quite quickly. Um, but what I'm really proud of is that we do have a, a, a mixed funding model, which isn't just relying, reliant on one part of of how you can make money from a, from a charity, but that requires a quite nuanced approach to how you are trying to bring investment in.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think it's something that charities often struggle with because when we talk about brand, um the number one thing is like thinking about who your audience is and then thinking about what your message is and, and what channels you use to to reach them. And so I suppose often charities think, well, who's my website for? Is it for our service users? Is it for our funders? Is it for the general public? Like so and they're such different audiences, then you know, I think that's often where people get a bit unstuck. It's kind of trying to make it something for everyone and then getting a bit stuck on that. Um, I think, yeah, I think you're right in terms of trying to pursue that mixed funding model as well. Um, I think lots of smaller charities are predominantly contracts and grants. um, And I think that's kind of usually, unless you've got a particularly strong network of some kinds that can provide funding, uh, that's usually got to be where you start, um, but if you can diversify from there, it, I just think it, it's it's often really difficult for smaller charities because actually, like the communities they work with are not affluent, so it's it's difficult for them to kind of tap into to people that can provide support and it, and and to kind of get that return on investment from that fundraising perspective.
1: Yeah, so how, how
0: how are you finding it so far in terms of some of those other income streams?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's um yeah I mean I think that point you just made about the communities you're serving are not affluent is such a good one because yeah you're the, the plan or the aim is never to take money from the communities that you're serving. My whole thing is how do we give more money to the to the communities that we're trying to engage with and so I'm always a bit confused when I see charities almost taking money from the very people they're trying to engage with. I think that's, that's, that's mad. So for me, um, it's so much about narrative. Um, I'm a storyteller at heart, um, you know, in how I write and even how in the past when I've I've had to deliver sermons or, you know, when I'm doing training, it's always the story which carries and I think you you just have to have one compelling story and vary it a little bit depending on who you're talking to. So from a power to fight perspective, um the mixed funding model is yep, there are traditional foundations and and grants funders who, who we 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 have got partnerships with, which is fantastic. Um and there are local government contracts and, and, and central government contracts and mayor contracts, um, but there's also corporates as well. There's there's you know, there's these there these big corporate entities who we are partnering with, um, which are, are are massive. And some of these things have, it, it, it did it all start like year one. Some of these things came in like year two, year year three. But then there's also how you um engage with high net worth individuals as well. So we in November we did a, an event at the House of Lords, which was, you know, because of COVID, it's probably our first kind of uh in-person event. And we were kind of targeting the tech sector because they've got a lot of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um we were able to partner with somebody who was very well respected in in the tech world and has made a lot of money in in tech and he brought his links and his connections and it's how
0: sorry to jump in but just to get into some of the details yeah sure uh uh, well first of all just go rewind a little bit i think just to say for some charities listening uh fundraising with the community you serve is is all good i think you know if you're a local hospice or you support you know particularly health kind of you know like in other sectors that it absolutely makes sense yes um but just to jump into your point there um yeah, how, how where how did you get the relationship with the the tech person who was able to to kind of invite their other connections yeah. and that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, I was kind of flippantly just said that didn't know, About <laughs> just, <laughs> you know, I just happened to you know billionaire. <laughs> yeah, um, so I think again, so this this comes back to understanding your skill set as a CEO, right? So one of the things which I am brilliant at is networking. I always have done since the days of being at school. I was one of the, I was saying this to my wife recently, I never just associated with one group of people. I I was the type of person who I was friends with lots of different people. And I think you bring that skill into this. So when it came to um, meeting Dean Forbes, who is um, CEO for Tero, kind of the whole tech investment world, and it was like a billion pound acquisition. It was quite a big deal in the in, in the tech world. Dean is from Southeast London, and it's as simple as I've got. A, we got a mutual friend, right. so, and I've been talking to her for a while. I was like, Do you know what, South Charity. See, Dean's doing quite well. I just wonder whether he'd be interested in having a conversation. And what was interesting about Dean? So I didn't know him. This this is crazy, right? I didn't mm-hmm. know him before September 2022. So we we finally meet in September 22 and I, the first thing i say to him is like, you know, I, I know, I've seen how successful you are. It's really lovely to see a black man from Southeast London being super successful, at what they do. But I wanna make it clear, I don't want your money. <laughs> And he was a bit like, what? And I was like, I, I don't want your money. I want your networks. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, I'm, I'm learning when you meet rich people, if you say stuff like that, that p- piques their interest <laughs> because mm-hmm. normally people just want their money. So he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, listen, you have links. I have access to places like the House of Lords. Can we do something? And straight away, he just said, yes, I'll bring all my friends you find the space, let's do it. And that was September and we did the event in November. And in that time, we've actually become really good friends. It's, it's, it's been great. But that's how that situation happened. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a, a partnership with Johnson & Johnson, um, a call for a three-year partnership with them. Again, that was random the person who was linking who linked me with that was following me on Instagram which is also another it's a good point be careful what you put on Instagram yeah <laughs> it's, the, it's the best way to get an insight into the into the person you you are investing in and not just investing mm-hmm. in your corporation or your charity investing in you but that again the person said to me ben we've got I've been watching you Johnson Johnson I've got a fund which is very much about um equity for um, for uh, minority communities and mental health we think power to fight could be a good fit okay let's let's have that conversation um so we we with i i think really i always say this to my son likeability <laughs> gets you into more doors than anything else like yes so i think there's a narrative conversation have you got a strong narrative what is it that you are investing in, and why should I care about your cause? And to be honest, violence affecting young people is probably one of the most difficult things to fundraise for because it's one of these causes where people will second guess. Mm. What I mean by that is, uh, and I was running a half-mouth in, in October, and what's interesting when you're running um, long distances your mind goes off in different places at different points. Normally, when I get to about 16K, I'm just like, what am I doing, and <laughs> thinking about all types of things. But what's interesting is that I'm, depending on who I tell the story to, I'm either running past people or they're running past me. And I'm seeing, all I'm seeing is um, cancer charities yeah. and dog charities. These are the, these are the T-shirts yeah, yeah. I'm watching going past me. And I'm like, whoa! This is crazy. It's like it's so. There's nothing wrong with those charities. I'm just saying they're easier to fundraise for. Yeah. And you don't guess. You don't second guess. If someone says, "Oh, yeah, hey, I'm here for blind dogs," you're not questioning the 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 subject matter. Yeah. When you say you're you're fundraising for you know violence impacting young people, the first thing a lot of people think is. Well, hold on, what do they do? (laughs) Um, Are they in a gang? You know, as opposed to the empathetic uh, reaction which you sometimes get. So it's complicated. It's it's not a straightforward charity. Hence the reason Mm -hmm. why the multiple um, aspects of, of fundraising and the mixed funding model is so important for me because if I just rely on one aspect, I don't think we will be in the successful position that we currently are in. Yeah,
0: Um, I think that's, uh, I just wanted to pick up a couple of little detail points for people, because I think, again, like these, these different income streams are really tricky for for small charities to, to get started with. And I think one of the key things there was like leveraging your network a bit in terms of you, you ask someone, you know, for an introduction to someone that they know who you, you know, can help your organization. And I think being able to do that requires you to have done some networking in the past. So if you just don't do that, then you're not gonna get those opportunities. Um, so sometimes people struggle just because like, their networks are poor because they haven't invested in that over the last kind of 20 years. Yeah. Um, but often people will see that mega successful, wealthy person over there and just want to kind of send them an email directly. And then you know they're surprised when they get no response. So I think that's something that those those introductions just make your response rate go from like less than 1% up to certainly above 50%, I would say. The key one to pick up on is really building those networks over time and then leveraging them when you can. Um, and that it's a really interesting point about not asking for money because there's a kind of old ask for money and get advice, ask for <laughs> advice mm-hmm. and get money. <laughs> Oh, um, and I think, but I think as a fundraiser, there are times when you do have to make the ask. Um, But I think, you know, there is something there as well about um not just turning up and saying, can you give us some money, but thinking about that sort of partnership and what you can do for them and how you can get them involved as you did. there. I think that's a really nice example of where where you can offer something and you can work together and it kind of creates more of a a relationship that you can build on. Um, So I think those are key things. And then I guess with the corporate one there, you've got a bit lucky. Well, it's, it's kind of, it's come your way, but it's come your way as a result of you doing things. So if you weren't putting the time into those social media channels, then you wouldn't have got that inquiry. So I guess it's uh,
1: I I don't think it's luck. I I think it's, I think it's, I think it's, knowing so everything i do with power to fight on social media is is extremely calculated so it's whatever comes out on i have a brilliant digital content lead who really understands who we are going for but then there's also because i understand that people also invest in in individuals mm-hmm. i'm also very calculated on what i put on my personal channels as well and I think I know how to link. The other thing I would say is, um, I think maybe what people don't understand is how money works. And what people don't appreciate is how you spread your gaze to understand that money is different in different sectors. So if you just focus on the youth sector and the traditional ways of where that money can come in, you're not going to, that pound is not going to land and it's not going to expand. But if you can suddenly say, well, hold on, the tech world are bringing in billions. The music world are bringing in billions. There's all these brands which are bringing in millions and and billions. And um, all I want is a percentage from each of these different brands even if it's half a percent or whatever it is I don't I don't but the more of these brands I can connect with and the more I can make the link between violence affecting young people and how that somehow impacts your brand when you invest in this before you know it you suddenly have got a revenue stream which comes in and it's, whereas sometimes people were like, well, I just need to be focusing on, on this sector and where this money comes traditionally. It's like, no, the, the, the pound goes wider and bigger than that. Um, and you've just got to mind map a bit and think, well, why would, I don't know, why would Puma want to engage with an organization or a charity like Power Fight? Mm-hmm. Well, okay. They might want to engage with us because their target audience are young people, and therefore, there's a question on who the who are the people who are the talent, as I like to say, who are advertising uh, their product um, to the young people, and therefore, you then start just connecting a little bit like that. And oh, does Power to Fight have access to these types of young people? oh yeah well we do okay but we've also got a bit of a call for heart and we want to make sure that our young people are not being impacted in negative ways by what we're doing if you see what i'm saying so sometimes you just got to connect the dots and the narrative is there whereas when i connect with the nhs it's a whole different conversation when i talk to the nhs and we've just got a partnership with with the south london and moorsley um mental health trust it's different i'm saying to you You are delivering a mental health trust um, and a particular project helping families, but the families which you are engaging with don't look like the families who we're working with. So you've got a gap there, which I think Power The Fight can fill. So can we do a partnership where our families can connect in with your expertise, but I also want to be able to train your team because i don't believe you're culturally sensitive enough to actually engage with these families oh yeah that makes sense let's do a partnership and pilot do you see what i mean so i've just yeah. picked there's, there's a different way i would talk to a dean forbes who, with fortiro group tech billionaire billion pound organization to how i would then talk to a puma to how i would then talk to the nhs and I don't know if everyone has the ability to pivot like that, um, but that's the networking side of stuff, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think there is that. And I think, I mean, again, it comes down to resourcing partly, um, comes down to where people choose to kind of spend their time, doesn't it? I know a lot of smaller charity CEOs feel really stretched and it, the the more classic kind of um flow is like write a grant application, get the money in, forget about that funder until 12 months later. When you've spent the money, you've got to submit a report. So there's no real relationship there. And partly that's down to funders wanting it that way as well. They don't particularly want to engage much more than that. Um, But they'll, you know, charities will rely, small charities will rely on on that sort of model um, and, and won't think about how they can build more ongoing relationships with which those other partners will want. Like if you're you're going to develop those corporate partnerships, they're going to want to see what they're getting for their money, aren't they? Rather than um, you know just getting a report in a year's time.
1: Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's funny with corporates. Like some of them are, are less headaches than than traditional grants, for good or bad. Oh, yeah, they give you the money and They slap your logo on their website, they've ticked a box, right? Yeah, I
0: think most that's why
1: like, but, but, okay. but most of the corpus I do work with actually want more. They're kind of like, well, can mm. we pro bono stuff as well? Yeah, yeah. Can we can we actually engage on that on, on a on a real like actually help us get our culture right? Yeah. So most of the ones we we wouldn't just we're not the type of people who just take money without having like a real kind of ethical conversation um and a challenge to say well yeah it's not everything we would take money from uh, and that's the yeah, other thing yeah. it's tricky when yeah. some some organizations have offered you a lot of money you're like your your ethics and the ethos doesn't match ours yeah Systems all over. But,
0: but i think the thing is if you if you take the money and don't do much afterwards then you might get that five grand 20 grand whatever it might be yeah. and it's a one-off and there's no you know nothing else happens whereas if you have those multiple layers to that. And with corporates, it's it's about having a partnership rather than just getting a grant, isn't it? So it's, yeah. you know, if you can go in and do some training or give some talks yeah. with our staff, if you can um, do some brand stuff, do some stuff on social media and, and things like that and find different ways to engage, but kind of skilled pro bono volunteering, all of those things build that relationship. So they're, they're more likely to then support you again the following year. And if you can keep doing that, you know, and that's, I suppose, where, You know, if the partnership makes sense, if there is that kind of alignment between the brands and there are genuine ways for them to support the charity and for you to offer something to them as well, then there's no reason why it can't keep continuing each year. Whereas if it's a bit more forced and it's kind of like you're finding something for some employees to do rather than having a genuine kind of role for them to fill in that pro bono sense, uh, then it, you know, it's you. You're then needing to spend more time managing that to happen than it would be, you know, you wouldn't want it to be continuing year after year because you're kind of, you know, having to find things for them to do.
1: Yeah, Uh, good.
0: I realize we've ended up talking loads and loads about just the fundraising marketing side of things uh, and had a bunch of other stuff on the list. In terms of the programs you've developed, how have they kind of developed and evolved? Maybe you can say briefly what the kind of key aspects of work you do how that's evolved over the last few years like what you've learned along the way and how that's kind of influenced how things have adapted as you've gone along
1: yeah we launched 2019 and as I kind of said before the evaluation side and evidence base of the work that we we do was always going to be a massive feature for us um so the a, a key moment was the end of 2019 we were able to get some money from the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan's violence reduction unit to do a pilot therapeutic support, um, in a, in a, in a school, local school in Southeast London. It wasn't a, a massive amount. Well, I say it wasn't a massive amount. It was 50,000 pounds for three months, um, to start in March, 2020. So I built a small team. I, I got like a, a team, a clinical lead. I've got a, a youth practitioner, I've got a counsellor and I've got my uh, evaluator from from a criminologist from the university and we were gonna be the delivery team effectively going in to schools to see if this idea of therapeutic support for young people, teachers and staff and parents worked. So that was all going and then obviously 2020 comes, <laughs> just as we're about to kick off, um, this little thing called a pandemic happens, which means we can't get into schools. And at that moment, you have to make a decision quite early in the lifespan of the charity. Do you furlough yourself and part this until um, the pandemic's over? Or do you think, which we ended up doing, like, actually, I don't know what's going to happen, but it feels like, actually, young people are going to probably need us now more than ever. So let's just go for it. And what we did, we pivoted. And this is something which... I do thank the mayor of London for allowing us to do this, but also as a smaller organization, you can do where we said, listen, we can't deliver the service, but I wonder whether we could turn it into a research project where we can really ask the question to young people and families and practitioners, their engagement with therapeutic support and how culturally competent it was. They agreed, the VRU and and the mayor of London agreed, and it turned into a research project. And then in September, 2020, we released the report, this therapeutic intervention for peace report, looking at culturally competent therapeutic services and the approach and we interviewed 102 young people, five in-depth interviews with with families impacted by violence and uh, 20 interviews with um, practitioners on the front line. And that one report, which came out um, in September 2020, absolutely informed and impacted our sector, where suddenly the language started changing around therapy and cultural competency and cultural sensitivity. And from that report, we were then able to get money from the Home Office, um, from the violence reduction unit, from other grants. To then allow us to pilot this work. And so we piloted it in in January 2021. And then as we've gone on and gone on, we've been more establishing schools across um London. So that's the therapeutic arm of, of, of the work. Um, the other arm was the training side of it, and you know. We, as I said earlier on, we, we've well, I don't know if I've said this actually. We've trained over thirteen thousand practitioners in the last um, four years, and again, the pandemic worked for us because we we were able to train so many people online. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, should...
0: and when when you say practitioners, Ben, is that like health education? What yeah. what sort of roles? What practitioners? So we're talking they?
1: about teachers. We're talking about GPs. We're talking about surgeons um we're talking about youth workers um police officers community members faith groups anyone who's engaging with young people effectively really and some of that training would include how do you become a more culturally sensitive organization and what's your understanding around county lines um introductions to understanding about violence affecting young people gang exit strategies specifics around violence against um affecting women and and girls all the things uh contextual safeguarding all these things which um the sector kind of know but actually not many people are trained in this stuff and that again has become um, a very profitable arm of the of the charity to the point where last year when i've employed now a head of training and she's got her own team now and that training is up and down the country. So that, again, was something which kind of grew. Um, we also support families who have who have lost young people. So we've given over So first.
0: Sorry to interrupt you again, but just out of interest, just with the training, because I know that's, a, again, a, something that lots of small charities have their expertise and they're like, this should be something we can create a training product and sell, and, but then really struggle to execute in terms of actually then selling the training and getting the people booked on and making any money out of it yeah. and particularly making any like any kind of profit from it. So mm. what what do you think is like what worked in terms of getting started and managing to train so many people? Were there like any particular things that catalysed that?
1: Yeah, definitely. So one of the things and this comes back down to networking, um when we first started, I basically were, were able to pinpoint and ask the best well-known people in the sector for those specific topics. So for example, when it comes to contextual safeguarding, the name in our sector, who is the person who pioneered that is Professor Carlin Furman Mm -hmm. at Durham University. She's someone I've known for years. I just said, listen, I need you to be a trainer for me. I'll happily pay you. Can you lead on, on this? Yes okay, when it came to gang exit strategies, a, a guy from Birmingham called Craig Pinckney was the person who I knew was doing a PhD on this type of stuff and my work in the past. Craig, can you be the lead on this? No problem. And, you know, uh, Temi Morali, who runs Forefront Project, I said, listen, your understanding on the legal system and, and the race dynamics and some of this stuff, um, could you do a training for me on this? So suddenly what we had was this, roster of uh, trainers across London, across the UK who were well known in the sector, who all came under power to fight. And it wasn't all about me. I mean, I, I delivered some training, but we when you saw this, it was like, oh gosh, no, we know these people are. And so that ended up generating money. But if I'm honest, it didn't bring in, it didn't bring in a lot of money in the <laughs> early days, you know? um what then really started bringing in the money was when you're then doing when um local authorities will come to you mm-hmm. and service will say can you train our team here can you train our team there and that started happening a lot more I and mean, across the country you know cardiff you for so, could you train our whole team on this particular issue here and then you'd start building it into Contracts as well. Okay, well, we've now got a contract with the school to deliver the therapeutic side of stuff, but we also want to train the teachers. Can we mm. build it into this point as well? So then it's just become it's become yeah. its own entity in its own arm of power. To Fight. And,
0: and is most of it done online, or are you going in and doing it in person as well?
1: Some of it's done online, but most of it's done in person now. Okay.
0: And so those those sort of well known sort of leaders in in the field that you got. So did you have to? pay for their time to kind of create the training content and then are they still delivering all of it so you get that call from cardiff and then like you get your team together or how how's that working logistically
1: we always paid them well you i i've definitely made it um a a key thing where this wasn't a favor you know their their time um i mean they gave me a bit of a discount but they did they i paid them (laughs) um but now four years in actually we don't use them as much because we have a training team um, who are skilled in those particular topics. Um, We still use them every now and again, and depending on who we've partnered with, there might be a very specific uh, type of training where we like to actually... But we've also done partnerships now with the Contextual Safeguarding Network who are based at Durham University, where we are one of their deliverers as well. So there's just different ways that you can make sure the money with the NHS partnership that we've got with Slam, there's a training arm connected to that, and there's a part of money which goes into that as well. So yeah, it's it's just one of those things there, really.
0: All right, Thanks. That's really interesting. I, I did cut you off though, so I think you were you talked oh, no, about the, you talked about the therapeutic stuff, and then you're you're talking about the training. I think you're just about to move on to something
1: else. Well, I think the other thing. There's two two quick things really. One, the other thing which helped, kind of. Going back to the, the, the single and the album and analogy, where it was like the single really is the way to promote the album which is coming. For Power The Fight, we were like, how do we promote the work that we, we do? So our podcasts, our power talks, was the thing that we did. We got four seasons of those. And the first season was, I interviewed the, the best people in the sector to get an understanding of what they do, but also to promote the work that we do. Mm-hmm. So that was the single. The single went out. It went out and everybody was liking it and sharing it, and it was brilliant, and it was a free resource, which people still use today. But it also then meant it was, it was advertising. Cause then when people went on our website and they were like, oh, actually, I wouldn't mind some training on contextual safeguarding or whatever, there it was. It was right there so that was that was a very useful way of promoting the organization wider because it isn't just about go to our website it's like oh no this is a resource which has been shared and it's branded the other thing which is something which comes out of our reserves there is no funding stream for this is the money which we give to ch- uh, families who have lost loved ones to violence so we've given over thirty thousand pounds to to 60 families, but that is coming out of our reserves. That is that is us doing that um, ourselves, um, which I think is important, but also demonstrates where there's a gap in, in the sector for supporting families in the aftermath of violence. Mm-hmm. So there's, this, there's multiple strings to what, what we do. Um, and depending on what you want to fund, a funder can look at that and be like, actually we want to fund this particular aspect of it.
0: I think we're we've done a good amount of time, Ben, so we'll we'll start wrapping up. In terms of resources that we can share with people, and obviously you've got you've got the podcasts and, and the reports on the website, so we can share that. What what else might there be? What do you think's worth letting people know about? We can put the links on the website.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um just go to our website at www.powerfight.org.uk. There's lots of resources on there. Um there's lots of opportunities to be trained some toolkits you know there's, there's there's ways that you can uh there's like letters templates to your mps where you can kind of engage if you want to really kind of ask the question about what is your what are your local authorities really doing around this issue around violence affecting young people we uh there's there's campaigns which we are uh engaging with at the moment um, around mental health and emotional well-being of young people which will be all over our social media at the moment so there's many things that you can get involved in
0: cool and i know i really enjoyed your tedx talk as well so i'll stick the link to that, oh, yeah, about I can, that? Yeah. probably a few years ago i think but it's really no, it was only, it was only a year ago It's only, oh, was it was it? only okay.
1: yeah we did it i did it in april last year and yeah that tedx talk is um really interested in understanding like the therapeutic work that we do and, and where we got to that. So definitely that is a good, that's a good resource. So, yeah. It's
0: just like a nice short way into kind of understanding some of the issues and stuff there. Um, are there any resources that you kind of use yourself that you'd recommend to like other charity CEOs or, or founders yeah, and that sort of thing?
1: There's some good books actually. I'm just looking at my bookshelf at the moment. Uh-huh. Um, I So there's one book I Oh, there's many books, but um, the inclusive leadership book uh, by Charlotte Sweeney and Fleur Bothwick is, is something which is just I found I found very helpful in terms okay. of how you build like truly inclusive organisations, and that's a book I refer back to, which I think is quite helpful. Um, one of the things which I I've, I've definitely found in terms of understanding people we've used um you know those like psych psychometric testing oh yeah we've used strength scope um which is, is a good a good thing for us to be able to refer back to giving you an idea of where we are in terms of if the organization about strengths and weaknesses and and stuff but also as individuals so that is also a helpful tool um what else can i recommend i mean what we haven't really spoken about is just the culture that we're trying to build as well um so we're trying to build um a culture which isn't one of burnout as well um and I think that's important for us, where every member of staff, we've got 17 members of staff, every member of staff gets clinical supervision. Um, um, every member of staff, we're in a space where we can have reflective spaces. Um, we're, we're part of an employee scheme as well, externally, which um, can offer therapeutic support and advice as well. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I care a lot about making sure that um... we'll of work that we do that actually our staff are in a good, good position
0: yeah i guess our conversation's focused on the kind of external face inside working, <laughs> yeah, working with yeah. communities and funders and other stuff maybe we'll do do a round two at some point of how you look after people in the organization and think about that leadership and culture and stuff like that um is there anything else uh you anything you want to say to the listener before we wrap up
1: um i mean i think what I will say is that it's it's a really difficult time, right? We know we got, we're in a cost of living crisis. Um, and my charity is no different in terms of trying to work out um, how we keep the lights on, <laughs> you know? Um, and therefore you can find yourself spreading yourself quite thinly at times. Um, I think CEOs play or in this unique position where we're the only ones who wake up every morning with a particular figure in our head that we need to to, to, to to keep going for to keep the lights on, it can be lonely. Um, I'm fortunate that I've got really good trustees um, I'm accountable to, um, and there's mechanisms I have to keep try and keep myself sane. Um, I've mentioned it. I like I like to run, um, and I, and I suppose my thing is I never want to be the type of person. I've got three children. I don't want my kids to ever turn around and say. Dad, you were never around, you know, and even when I'm around, am I really, truly present? There's this type of stuff which I I think about a lot. So I suppose my encouragement to CEOs and and charity leaders is that, yeah, you know, if you're not looking after yourself, that will trickle down into the charity. So quite selfishly, make sure you've got time for yourself and make sure you've got time for your family or, or whatever it is because the culture is always set by the leader. Um, and therefore, if the leader's not in a great place, it will show up in the charity. So that'd be my only thing. And thank you for an opportunity, Alex, to to speak to you. It's, it's really great. Hopefully it's been helpful for people. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, yeah, no,
0: it's been a real pleasure. Really interesting stuff. Uh, lots, of, lots of kind of specific details that people can think about how they can apply it to their own sort of context as well. So thanks very much, Ben. Thanks for coming on. We'll wrap up there.
1: No worries. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Charity Impact Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time and attention. I know how precious a resource time is. I hope you enjoyed the show. If I could trouble you for a further two minutes of your day, I'd love to hear from you. You can leave a review on your podcast player via ratethispodcast.com slash charity. You can engage with us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search Charity Impact Podcast. Or search Charity Impact Podcast in your browser to find our website where you can email me directly and you can subscribe to our email list for the opportunity to submit questions for me to ask upcoming guests. You can also find all the show notes and the previous episodes and links to resources that our guests have recommended there. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening.